Hi, everyone. I am Amy Gonzalez. And I am Assessa Peffin. And we are Master of Landscape Architecture and Doctor of Design students at the GSD. The Nexus is produced in conjunction with a commitment to the Francis Loeb Library to acquire and create an open access bibliography of various media suggested by the community at the intersection of race and design. Today we have a group of exciting guests with us. First, we have the pleasure of having Akil and Seth Scaife-Smith from Resolve Collective. Resolve is an interdisciplinary design collective that combines architecture, engineering, technology, and art to address social challenges. They have delivered numerous projects, workshops, publications, and talks in the UK and across Europe, all of which look toward realizing just and equitable visions of change in our built environment. Much of their work aims to provide platforms for the production of new knowledge and ideas whilst collaborating and organizing to help build resilience in their communities. An integral part of this way of working means designing with and for young people and underrepresented groups in society. Resolve Collective's design practices encompass both physical and systemic intervention, exploring ways of using a project site as a resource and working with different communities as stakeholders in the short and long-term management of projects. For Resolve, design carries more than aesthetic value. It is also a mechanism for political and socioeconomic change. Welcome to Keelan Seth. Thank you for having us. We also have the pleasure of having Ama Giselle with us today. Ama Giselle is an artist, writer, and filmmaker from Queens, New York. She graduated from Amherst College with a BA in English and Black Studies. There, she completed her first short story collection entitled, There are Sharp Things in the Ground and Her Hands Are Soft. From there, she expanded her practice to filmmaking, writing and directing her first short film entitled, Be Like Me in 2020. Her second and most recent project is called Convergence, an experimental documentary and dance piece that explores intimacy, connection, and vulnerability. Welcome, Ama. Thank you for having me. So we just like to kick off today's episode by getting into some of your recent projects that you've all been doing. And we noticed that you have all done work that sits deeply in issues surrounding identity and space in Black communities. Your recent collaboration, Akil and Seth, with Skin Deep for their first editorial season is called Local. And the word in itself holds a lot of meaning and contestations. But what I think I found most interesting in your statement about this issue being, and to quote you, about the locals that are part of architecture, if you don't mind, I'd like you to speak a bit more of this definition of local, its relationship to architecture, and what essentially inspired you to engage with a project that highlights this connection. Definitely. So the project started from a long-standing partnership and collaboration we have with Skin Deep, who are an organization or a platform that work on race and culture and kind of strive towards this kind of vision of equity in the city and in the UK. And so we came up in and around lots of groups like Skin Deep, and we were all working in our own local area that's in London, and we were working towards trying to kind of affect that local area. And so we kind of saw ourselves as part of this ecosystem through which we were trying to affect and kind of transform our area for a more equitable vision. And that long-standing relationship, I guess, had been evolving and we were really keen to try and work on something collaborative, but also kind of self-initiated. And so we were really interested in exploring other people's locals 
and how we then catalyze and kind of build upon existing relationships from our own practice in other places in the UK, specifically with underrepresented communities in those places. So we kind of came to this idea of exploring three different cities, London, Birmingham and Sheffield, and different social infrastructure within that city. So community centres, groups that look at kind of racial justice through art practice and youth centres. And we looked back, we kind of reflected on some old collaborations of ours uh, and chose to try and build those up. So that's kind of where the onus came. And to think about locals and local people and locales as being part of this canon of architecture, I think was something that was implicit in the way in which those groups were using space. In Birmingham, Maya, the group that we were working with, really, really amazing organisation, they're using and appropriating these new spaces that sit amongst an old, unequitably designed space, a space in which uh, inequality has been kind of designed in, has been baked into the kind of fabric of the space. And they use these types of spaces in order to then create room and to create, you know, local infrastructures for different creative groups, for people who are looking to use music recording, to use artistic practices to use food as a way to connect with one another so they were using space in a really interesting way similarly in Sheffield Sadaka who were an old standing Caribbean community center they were using and appropriating an industrial heritage of the city and kind of reusing these types of spaces to connect Caribbean diaspora across the city so how people were using architecture was implicit I guess it wasn't architecture with a capital A but it was something that was really the object of the project Thank you. So Ama, your latest work, Convergence, you describe it as an experimental documentary. It's just very beautiful, expressive dancing against these equally beautiful backdrops of landscape. And to me, it has these kind of beautiful, hazy feeling of watching a dream. Can you speak more about Convergence, both generally, but also related to some of the things that Akhil has touched on? Yeah, Convergence was born, I guess, in early 2021, I was living in LA and I had moved to LA about six weeks before the pandemic. Um, And it's based on the book, The Vertical Interrogation of Strangers by Banu Kapil, where she takes 12 questions and she's of Indian descent, but she spent a lot of time in the UK. And so she goes back and forth asking people these questions as a way to connect. And I thought post-pandemic, living in a city that I never really got to explore, that it would be a really cool project to try to ask these questions and develop a sense of intimacy with people that I knew marginally, people that I didn't know, people that I knew really well. It was a collection and it turned into this really beautiful experimental piece. And in terms of what drew me to Seth and Akil's work, I think they were talking about an interdisciplinary approach to work really resonated with me. As I just discussed, there's so many different ways to approach the art, whether it's through food, whether it's through music, whether it's through architecture with or without a capital A. In my practice, I'm trying to be more interdisciplinary. Obviously, this is a film mostly, but it incorporates dance, it incorporates documentary style elements. And I think space was a really important part of this film because I didn't get to explore LA. I really wanted to play with landscape. I really wanted to be outside. And I really wanted to, yeah, to show LA in its beauty. And I'm really happy with how it came together. Wonderful. Yeah, it was beautiful. So, you know, Akhil and Seth as designers and Amma as a filmmaker, you know, you both are engaging with space. Something that caught my ear earlier that Akhil said was the idea of inequality being baked, being designed into a space. And Amma, you've spoken about 
inspiring feelings in a space, invoking particular emotions or reactions in your viewers through the ways that you manipulate space. So I'd really like to take a second to talk about that, since I think you all have very interesting perspectives on it. So we're really interested in how you make decisions, how to use space, you know, who fills that space, who is highlighted or included, and just as importantly, like, you know, what is excluded? I think we, our, like, work in space comes from this kind of line that we straddle between initially being the local and then becoming the practitioner, developing our practice as a way of understanding the potential of space and the potential space has to kind of bring people together, but also to kind of stimulate the imaginary of particularly minority groups who are usually left out of this decision-making process. I think what we're always very careful to do is not to take on the, the kind of position of authority and to determine and dictate who then uses that space and how that space is then used in the future, but rather to kind of open up and build a much more like I use the word much more inclusive, but perhaps it's more like participatory process of creating space. And one of the ways that we've done that and arrived to that is emotional mapping, um, which is an exercise that in 2019 we developed. And the reason why we developed it is because we were really interested in this idea that people can exist within the same city, within the same neighborhood, within the same town, but experience a completely different city. And you can be walking down the same street, but experience a completely different connection to that place. And it's not because of the bricks and mortar and the rose batch, it's because of the the feelings and the emotions and the connections and the histories that are overlaid in that space. We use that as a kind of tool to explore like spatial condition and explore possibilities with different communities and different groups of people, old, young, from different kind of backgrounds. And I think that, as I was saying, rather than give us like a real kind of stringent model of how to build space, what it did is it allowed us a really like what we find a really amazing way to open up these conversations about space to people who feel like they might have been left out of those conversations in the past or just haven't arrived to that conversation yet so it's kind of like it's how do we flip that conversation so it's less about what can and can't and more about possibilities I think the word potential really stuck out to me as we were looking for spaces to shoot conversions in it was important for us to find a space that had a lot of natural light mostly because having been in spaces where there isn't a lot of natural light, it just inspires a feeling of... The word dread came to mind. I think that might be a little dramatic, but it doesn't inspire openness, which is what we were trying to get at, and vulnerability and intimacy, which was the point of convergence. Um, so looking for spaces that naturally were inviting, and that had a lot to do with design, I think particularly because we're trying to find a shot the space matters, and then all the different potential for shots in the space matter, right? So it's finding walls that are interesting, aka not white. You know, it's pretty hard actually to find a non-white wall. And in LA, luckily, there are tons of studios, but trying to find spaces that were just more interesting to the eye was really important to us. And then our outdoor spaces, trying to find spaces that I think incorporated all of the things about LA that I love. So a lot of nature, a lot of mountains. Our main shot for the dance portion was a mix of greenery and sort of brown, orangey mountainous ranges up in uh, Northern Los Angeles. Um, and we actually shot it in an orchard. And I think that was important to inscribe that feeling of the earth, of home, which was important for the piece. Great. Akil, would you like to say something as well? Um, 
I think I'm really interested in this idea of location as both a kind of a mechanism for filming and also an integral part of a kind of architectural or spatial practice. I think the way that Amit describes kind of location finding um, is very similar to how we think of the site of the resource. And in our practice, we're kind of often scoping things out. We're often going on the hunt or going on the kind of foraging areas, both for, for physical materials, but also for emotional types of materials, for, for non-tangible materials, for memories. Um, and the processes that we develop, although kind of tangible, are always around kind of speaking to this plethora of experience, both intangible and tangible. How do we reconnect memory in place? How do we understand this vision of home and how people project this idea of home into these places? So I think there's a lot of harmony, a lot of concord between those two types of practices. I think it's a really interesting way of framing these things. That's great. I love some of the things you said about making the intangible tangible. Sometimes I like to think that is what things like architecture are. I wonder how you feel about that. Do you feel as if the work that you do is that, is to make the intangible something tangible? Uh, you've got Seth now. I think there is an element of that, certainly. There's, this, there's an element of translation in the work that we try and do. But then it's also important to think about architecture as one of the tools that we use and a plethora of tools that we have to create space and actually like take it, kind of breaking down some of these existing hierarchies that we have between the discipline and then the the product of that discipline and thinking about all of us, all of the kind of different actors within this process as like agents of space or architects of that space, both physically and kind of emotionally or kind of intangibly. Um, I think that's one of the processes that we do more so. So there's a translation process, but it's less about translating the kind of complexities and detail that exists within a discipline into a more understood fashion. There are a lot of people who do that and do that very, very well. And whilst that is important, I think there's this much more kind of meta way of thinking about it. And there's a much more, we say like, or we think equitable way of thinking about that translation process. And it's about kind of valuing and kind of platforming some of these different actors, architects, agents of this kind of big spatial picture that we work within. Emma, as a filmmaker, how do you feel about that intangibility? Do you feel as if your practice is making the intangible tangible? Yeah, I think that's a really really wonderful way to describe it. I think I was writing something for Convergence and I wrote, what's so special about the space we created? I can't articulate it, but I know I felt it. And I think that was a really big thing for us was just, does it feel right? And I think as a director, my job mostly is to create sort of the optimal conditions for the magic to happen. I can't force, you know, those little moments on screen that really make a film or any piece of work powerful. It's more about creating all of the conditions for things to be as open as they can be and using all the tools in my toolkit to do that. And I think similarly for architecture, you can build a space, you can have all the hopes and, and wants and dreams and desires for a space, but until people start using that space, do we really know what it is? I actually like that you are transitioning to some of the personal elements of the work that you all do. And so far, you've all mentioned your work deals with connection, with um, diasporas, with intimacy, with agency and memory. And while these are all kind of unifying words, they're also deeply personal, I think. And I was just wondering what parts of yourself 
creator or designer, a filmmaker that you see reflected in your work and how you navigate that position of being in a complicated place where you sometimes have to narrate other people's experiences, but essentially it's still subject to being influenced by your own personal experiences. So I was just wondering if, I guess, Akil or Seth, you could speak a bit about how you see yourself reflected in the work that you do. Okay, Akil speaking. I think that there's always a tension in how we work with and design spaces in the sense of exactly what you said between this kind of battle of authorship and spaces kind of, as we know, they take on these lives as a result of the lived experiences and the spatial practices of just everyday people in those spaces. I think it's very easy to assign a space to a function, and we do that all the time when we're working out how we produce something, whether it's a, a process or whether it's a, an object or whether it's a kind of a full space. But that function inevitably gets overwritten and overrun and takes on a life of its own. Uh, and I think perhaps one of the, the ways in which we understand that is just to be comfortable with the idea of a gradual decay of authorship when it comes to how we create or co-create or kind of dissolve spaces. I think there's an inevitability to how things end up taking on a life of their own. And our aspect of design, our, our intention with design is never to over-conscribe those types of things. I think we kind of react quite viscerally against this 20th century ideal of the auteur or the Gessam Kunst work, it's very much around a participatory process, but really not with an, an illusion of grandeur towards a kind of de fully democratised space. I think it's really just about a contended space, a contested space, in which our identity jostles with the identities of others. So that's really important for us, and especially when we're working in places that aren't our own backyard. You know, we did a lot of work in the start in our own area, and our own ends, like we say, in London. But since then, we've gone around the UK, around Europe, to places which are, are really, really not ours. And how we connect to those, I guess, it always starts with this acknowledging of it not being our place, but thinking about how we bring some of those places, how we bring our ends with us when we're designing and when we're co-creating with people there. Thank you. And Ama, I'd also like you to speak a bit to this. And I think I really still hung up on this idea of decay of authorship that happens through work. And I would just love to hear your thoughts about how this happens in, or if it happens at all, in your work in filmmaking. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to say it. I think I have a little bit less of that in filmmaking because I'm the editor, I'm the director. I at least for this project, I was involved in pretty much every aspect you could think of. So I think my authorship was pretty strong. And I think that required, though, a lot of trust from the participants, which I was really proud that they trusted me with, with a lot of the vulnerable things that they shared because I got to pick and choose. And similar to even this, I told people, you know, if you don't want something in there, if you said something that you definitely know that you don't want out there, like, just let me know. And I think those types of agreements, those types of, you know, setting the scene help inscribe the amount of trust that is necessary to make a project like Convergence. And because I have so much, I guess, quote unquote, power to sort of put whatever I would want in there, I think it was important for me as a director to level the playing field a little bit, um, which is why I decided to interview myself, actually. I felt like if I'm asking people to come and be as vulnerable as they are with me, I should have the guts to do that myself. 
for me, it's more about finding ways in the process to sort of share the power and to make everybody feel as safe as possible. Yeah. And I'll just go off of that. And you describe the process and how much of yourself goes into this. And I think a crucial part of all the work that you all do is the labor that actually goes into this. And I think this is something that gets left behind in a lot of conversations that we have about these kinds of projects. We end up focusing a lot on the end product, but I was just very interested in how you organize that labor and how you encourage creativity, giving the long timelines that you face, and especially for Resolve and also yourself, Ama, um, you both discuss working with communities, with people. How much involvement do you rely on from these people? And if you could just give us a brief walkthrough of what that process is like for you. And um, Ama, if you could start that off for us and Akil or Seth, you can continue. Yeah, I think... um Probably one of the hardest parts is preserving creativity given long timelines. In the grand scheme of things, Convergence took about a year, which is not a long timeline for a film. But personally, I get bored pretty easily. So I try to work as quickly as possible. And that's been a theme in my work since I started. I make most of my films in about a year. But yeah, I think preserving creativity, for me, it's a very self-motivated factor I was working while I was making conversions. So a lot of it is, okay, I'm just going to, (laughs) after work, even if I'm tired, I'm going to keep editing. And I think watching the footage and being sort of so attached to how good I want the outcome to be, how authentic I want the outcome to be, that was also a motivating factor as well. But it is a long process and it's sitting down with my editor almost every week, making tiny changes. It's hard. I don't feel like I'm describing this as well. So maybe I'll add on after Akil and Seth. But yeah, it's not as easy as I thought. Yeah. So Ama, you've described your process um, and the labor that goes into this process. And for Akil and Seth, I was really curious about how you deal with the different transformations that happen or how you leave room for the transformations that happen in your work. And that is to say how you adapt or include adaptable elements in your design to allow it to morph as it intersects with people and their experiences. Um, If you could just speak more to those relationships that you talk about at the very beginning, um, when you talk about the relationships you formed and your reliance on these relationships you formed with the communities and how they inspire you um, and how this relates to the adaptability or if in fact you make your projects adaptable because of this. Yes, Seth Smith back on the mic. Um, It's a good question. I'm going to try and be as concise as possible, but I'm going to describe it through a case study of a project that, that I think actually captures a lot of the things that you said quite well, because there's like a recognition of all of the different like transformations that a project in a particular space can go through. Um, and I think we as practitioners need to learn that as we develop our practice. So it's not something that anyone comes to you and says like, this is exactly how it's going to be done. It differs every project you go on because people have their time commitments, especially when you work with, let's say, like marginalized communities or communities that are outside of this particular creative process. You have to kind of recognize their time commitment, the value that they put on their own time. So unless you've got the kind of same amount that you're you know, paying yourself as a professional to cover these people's time, you can't expect the same input. So that changes throughout each project. But if we take the first project that I think I mentioned or maybe I haven't introduced is a project that we did in 2019 in Sheffield. 
Um, and we were really just interested in how we could use this small gallery space that we had to create a space that allowed us to explore these different relationships that people have with their city. And that was kind of working with young people, working with residents, a resident association, working with the, the local artist community, working with some people in the kind of music scene. And that process went through some of these really interesting stages of transformation that we kind of uncovered at each step of the process. Um, and the space then reflected that. And the way that we kind of built a flexible enough space to reflect that was really important for us. So the initial kind of process where we started to understand what the space might look like was done in collaboration with two art schools and a residence association. And that was actually introducing, we got the, a really amazing opportunity to get introduced to the city and to these different relationships and layers of the city through the eyes of these groups of people that we worked with. That then gave us a really good understanding or what we thought was like a quite a good understanding and relationship with this new space for us. We then allowed that to influence how we wanted the space to be designed, but also importantly, how we wanted the space to be programmed. What kind of conversation do we want to have in there? What kind of activities do we want people to be willing to do in that space? At that stage, the kind of transformation that you're talking about, the, the space switch. So it turned from this kind of thing that was co-created and co-designed into something that was then going to be, let's say, co-programmed. At that point, it became much more about how do we allow and facilitate networks of artists, musicians, and people who need space to express themselves and want to use that space to express themselves. How do we then transform this space so it can platform those groups throughout the summer that we were there? Um, and that's where we had to think about the flexibility. We had to think about some of the kind of prompts that we had in the space, some of the ways that we invited people in. We had activities that invited people in. We also meant that we also made it a kind of an accessible space. So we offered it out as a free rehearsal space for music groups and kind of musicians in the city because we wanted people to be encouraged to come and use it. So we had to then think about how are we going to then invite these people that we want to work with. They're not always going to be the same people that were involved in the design process because that was, I guess, a little bit more formal. We had a relationship with these groups and then it moved into something that was much more explorative. And that then, I think, contributed a lot to the afterlife of the space. So when the, the residency was done, it then became more about the relationships that we formed and that people formed through that summer, through that space, the garage is what we call it. Those relationships are still th things that we're exploring now. And again, that meant that it's kind of moved from this space that's been co-designed to then something that's been programmed. And now it's kind of moved, its third phase is something that is imagined for the future, like what kind of relationships and connections and possibilities are relevant to these people that we worked with. That actually, interestingly, is how we arrived at these conversations with local. So a lot of the people we were speaking to in the Sheffield context through local were relationships that had formed and we had formed through that space in 2019. So that's a very roundabout way, but hopefully I've explained that kind of well and tried to like hold it down to a case study and a project that we've delivered in a space that we're also unfamiliar with. Great. So I want to talk a little bit about this process of transformation a little bit more. And I think it's interesting because... In both of your practices, you know, you're going through a lot of different drafts, right? I'm thinking about Amaha, you were talking about earlier. Uh, you will work on editing, you know, and you'll be coming in and you'll be changing very small things um, one at a time. And also, of course, with architecture, you, know, you have your first draft and then your second draft. It, it's constantly changing, right? Both of your works. And so, you know, we gain a lot from that transformation. Maybe we gain some type of refinement from it. But I'm always wondering, do you think we lose anything in the process of transformation? The original content that was had, whether that be in the form of film 
or in the form of design. As as changes and as it's refined, do you think that anything is lost in that? And if Emma, if you could kick us off with that, and then either Seth or Akil, you could chime in as well. Yeah, I think a lot is lost. I think about, you know, when you read an interview at the end, it goes edited for clarity. I feel like that's what I do. I edit it for length and clarity because nobody wants to watch 10 hours of footage or maybe some people do. Yeah, I I think that um, there's so much gained from being able to sit in the creative process and really refine because you're refining the film, but you're also refining your intention. You're refining what exactly you wanted from this, from at least for convergence from the people who spoke to me. But a lot is lost. And I think about the phrase, kill your darlings. Like there were so many beautiful things that people said that I just couldn't include for length, for clarity, for whatever reason. But I do think that there's a sort of beauty in these things that, at least for me, that only I know was said or the people on my team know was said or the person who said it knows was said. Um, And how, even though it's not in the actual film, I like to believe that the essence of a lot of what we've talked about a lot of what was talked about in the film that didn't get included is still in there. I think sort of in a broader sense, there's an energy that we all bring to our projects or that we're trying to bring out of our projects and the things that are said and unsaid, things that are you know designed and taken out or put in or not put in. I think that those all still tie into the final version or the final vision of our projects. I did want to speak on limitation, I think a little bit, because I think limitation in my praxis is very important. As an independent filmmaker, I sort of thrive off of limitation. I have to have boundaries because if I didn't have boundaries, then I think I wouldn't know where to go. And as much as people think of limitations as sort of a negative thing, I think of it more as a structure. And I think of how can I build my vision inside of this structure? And that I think helps keep me on task. I think it helps prevent me from you know, flying off into the ether with my ideas. I think that limitation is one of the most positive things about my praxis. And I think it allows me a lot of freedom actually to create because I'm tethered to something because I am grounded. And I think in order to make something that is material in the real world, you have to remain grounded. Akil speaking. I think there's a really beautiful convergent, not to make a pun, between that type of practice and ours, and I think where filmmaking and spatial practice become really these kind of synergetic practices really is in this, you know, that phrase you said, Amma, of kill your darlings is something I don't think we say explicitly, I think is really heavily featured in all of our practices. Our practices are very nebulous. The way we co-create is always a really kind of roundabout way. We are process-driven designers, so we're not designing product in some ways. And what we design is always unfinished and is always the result of these entangled and kind of uh, stretching conversations and so as a result we can't always include that in something that physically manifests and the idea isn't to do that I think we really try and avoid this idea of being didactic this idea of kind of instructing and telling people what to do you must sit here you must look at this you must read this you must know this and really start to use space as a way of questioning those things and in some ways I guess that kind of comes and has some parallels in how you leave a film to be interpreted or you have a cinematic practice that leaves things to be interpreted that kind of thrives of the multiple 
projections of what something could be, of the types of possibilities that Seth is talking about. And that's really where we try and sit. We really try and dwell in that space in which we're opening up possibility and space for interpretation, opening up a space to be written and kind of rewritten by those inhabitants or by those users. And in order to do that, we really do need to kill those darlings, to kill some of the details that might overprescribe space or to kill some of those conversations and some of those experiences, not necessarily to remove them from the project, uh, because I think they always sit in the experience of the project, but to remove them from overprescription, to remove them from kind of taking some form of didacticism in the space, a way in which people have to experience exactly what it was that we did and what we thought and how we've constructed to leave more things to the imagination and to leave things to be lost in a, a, a the process. That process of losing, I think, is something that's interesting to try and open out and to broaden for other people. I think part of what you've both talked about deals with this idea of exclusion as a practice or a process of refinement. But I think there's also the other side of this work that you do where there is a very intentional kind of inclusion or creating spaces that highlight a certain kind of inclusion in your work. And I'm wondering in relationship to this, how intersectionality plays into your praxis and more specifically how you design spaces or projects that are meant to have entry points for underrepresented or groups that are historically excluded. And I would just love if um, Ama, you could speak to this a little bit. Yeah, I think when thinking about the participants of Convergence, I thought a lot of Convergence. I thought a lot about who I wanted to include, and it mostly was people in the film are people of color who are from various, quote-unquote, underrepresented groups. And that was on purpose. I think that it was important for me to represent those voices, particularly because some of the questions are so vulnerable. I think that the perspective of those folks, just it's not heard enough and I wanted to include them. I think that also links to a larger topic and we've talked about this a little bit earlier on about the agency of the communities that we work with, especially when you're dealing with groups who have been, like you said, underrepresented or historically excluded. And I was wondering if Seth and Akil, if you could speak about how you balance what you want for the communities that you're working for. You spoke briefly about what the communities want for themselves, but I think it also is tied to what you hope to produce for those communities and how you balance that with the processes of your work. Yeah, you got Seth back on the mic. I guess it's a challenging one because you will always have your aspirations, especially when you're working with like communities and people who are quite close to your ideological aims, let's say. But I guess an example might be a project that we did last year with the Victoria Albert Museum in East London. And it was about the a new museum that they're forming in an area of East London that is having a lot of development, but a lot of the for the over the last let's say ten to fifteen years that development has left out certain communities um often in quite close proximity to the site of investment and that this was a kind of long term like action research residency that wanted to look at the role of young people in, in four particular boroughs. A borough is just like a, a kind of a district in the city. Now, with a project that's quite open-ended and strategic like that, you can have these really like massive aspirations. And I think it's important to have them because that allows you to take your interactions and your, because we did a lot of workshopping, so it allows you to take the intentions of your workshops and the aspirations of your project to like quite 
great heights. Like it allows you to talk about some really amazing things, talk about institutional transformation and how these spaces and these places might become more equitable. But I think then the important thing is when you're delivering the work and especially when that then becomes spatial as a lot of our projects does, like with an installation or with an exhibition, um, it's important to know just the value of the voices that you're platforming and the value of platforming those voices in certain spaces. Sometimes it's actually the contention and so the tension those voices in certain spaces exist within and the presence of them, that tension and that presence, I think, which is the important thing. And it kind of checks your own aspirations and you might not necessarily achieve all of these amazing things that you want to do. But I think just by creating those tensions and putting them in those positions and allowing that conversation to continue and creating spaces that ask questions rather than provide like definitive answers, I think you're automatically doing a lot for your initial aspirations and doing a lot for the people that you're working with. Although it is very hard. So in this point around kind of accessibility and agency, it's like you have to sometimes like check yourself and your own intentions and your own kind of desires of what agency looks like and think about agency in the kind of relevant context that you're working within. I have a question just to sort of add on to that. How would you you guys describe an equitable space? Obviously with like accessibility, there's like tangible equitable elements, but I'm talking about that like intangible. How would you define that? With great difficulty, I think. And that's because it's a really good question because it's like, I don't think you're often presented with a space that you can say is like yeah this ticks all the boxes for an equitable space but what I can describe is like equitable visions that I can see people trying to translate into some kind of spatial proposition but that does not mean that it's going to meet everyone's expectation for what equitability means I'm not trying to like avoid you know do like a classic politician and avoid the question but that's actually like the kind of difficulty in the environment we put ourselves in especially as like you know black practitioners who are trying to kind of put some vision forward. Akil has mentioned already Maya as um, a group in, in Birmingham and we sing their praises so much. And one of the reasons why, me personally, one of the reasons why I sing their praises so much is, is that that's what they're trying to do. What they are trying to do is deeply embed equitability and this idea that you need to kind of create larger platforms for those who previously didn't have a platform and, and prioritise the experiences and importantly, the imaginations and the possible visions of a future with these communities in whatever spatial proposition you have. Um, and you can work with artists, designers, architects, anyone to try and realise that vision. And they're, I think they're someone who we see as like truly inspiring when they put that forward. Not to, sorry, not to duck it. I think Akil will jump on the, the one-twos now as well. Oh, well, I was just going to flip the question on you, Amon. I'd be interested in knowing from your perspective, especially from behind the camera, do you ever see spaces? Do you ever kind of, see the potential for spaces to be equitable and what types of spaces do you see and what types of spaces do you encounter that you feel have that type of potential? Well, in my opinion, no, I don't really see a lot of spaces that are equitable. And my definition of equitable is sort of, will everybody that I envision being a part of this naturally feel safe in this space? And the answer is usually no. I just think that has a lot to do with also the construction of LA is very much, there's the studio, there's the Hollywood of LA, and then there's real LA. It's where the neighborhoods are, where people live, where people have been for generations. So in order to even shoot this space, I had to bring people from their neighborhoods into these studios, which there's no way I can necessarily guarantee that they're going to feel safe, particularly if I don't know them. 
But yeah, when we were looking at spaces, it was important to me to find a place that was at least close to sort of South LA, which is where a lot of people that I worked with live. It was really important to me to try to find a landscape area that was close, which I didn't. The area that we chose ended up being an hour outside of what we call proper LA. And that is just because that's where, you know, folks have access to space like that. The place where we shot, it's at a vineyard and it's expensive and it's in a much richer neighborhood than a lot of the people that I interviewed come from. So I think it's really hard because films cost money. And particularly in LA where film is such viable industry, there are spaces carved out for those industries that are sort of intentionally exclusive to the people who actually live there, who actually grew up there, who actually are, you know, maybe are in LA, but aren't there to do film. So no, I don't think I saw a lot of equitable spaces. And in my film practice, I don't see a lot of equitable spaces in general. And so it's up to me, I think, as a director to balance that out and to try to make it as inviting, as accessible, to make it so that people feel safe. So it seems like a word that is constantly coming up is a space. You know, we talked about that earlier, and I want to kind of keep that going for a little bit. I'm actually going to pull a quote from Seth McKeel's mission statement. It says, exploring ways of using a project site as a resource and working with different communities as stakeholders in the short and long-term management of projects. For us, design carries more than aesthetic value. It is also a mechanism for political and socioeconomic change. And that really struck me because it makes me start to wonder about, you know, how do you see your designs as future spaces? And also the fact that these spaces exist and then they will be occupied and then they will evolve and they will change. How do you feel about your lack of control in that? Akil speaking, and I know Seth will say something after me as well. I just want to follow on from what Amma was saying and then try and unite that with this question here. And I think that in that lack of the presence of equitable spaces and almost a kind of inherent paradox at this idea that an equitable space can exist within an inherently inequitable justice system, land uh, rights system, etc., etc. That's where I think our practice as an Amma's the camera is a tool, the camera is a type of space transforming tool, and the number of processes and the types of collective and participatory processes that we endeavor to use to explore and to redefine space, I think that's where there's almost a kind of romantic law to it. To some extent, and this is almost maybe kind of sadomasochistic, I think, it'd be very difficult to reclaim equitable space. You know, it'd be very difficult to do these types of things, which I think we find a lot of power in, in when we talk about justice, when we talk about reclamation, when we talk about inverting and subverting kind of like power structures. Uh, I think that's all towards practicing equitably rather than the acknowledgement or the creation of equitable spaces. Um, I think equity is something which is a spectrum within which we try and operate, not the object with which we try and run towards. There's a lot in there. I think that's something that's quite complex. And then to revisit that question around our particular type of practice, the site of the resource, again, is a kind of acknowledgement of that avalence of these types of spaces. The acknowledgement that there are spaces that have been produced by much wider structures of injustice and inequitable structures, but that the tools that we're concerned with, those tools by which we can forage material, those tools by which we can access and use and catalyze existing knowledges of space, I think those types of tools 
are quite inspiring for us because they they see these things not as final statements. They see these spaces uh, and these systems of oppression or these systems of kind of downpression not as finalities, but rather as the things by which to be resisted, to be reclaimed, but also to be used, to be subverted. Those are the types of languages I think that we're really interested in when it comes to using these spaces, when it comes to use to practicing spatially. I think. Seth, to jump in here, when we started, I guess because we were you know younger. And perhaps we were getting our introduction to some of these ideas. You do think a lot about like the future and the future for your spatial proposition. I've used that term a lot. Like I realise that I don't want to be exclusive with the term, but it's, you know, what are you suggesting is going to this space is going to be? Like, I think we were quite like fixated on what that meant for the future for us and for our practice and for our space because we all want a space. We all want to feel like we can kind of control and see through a space it gives us so much power and so much agency as we've used that term a lot as well but the more we've practiced the more kind of spaces that we've like moved through we start to find ourselves becoming much more committed to some of these things that Akil has mentioned to the process to the methodology to the tools that we develop to the relationships that we form but less to the kind of the space that we create and operate within and more kind of you know accepting of this state of existence and non-existence that we try and encourage a lot of the institutions that we work with to become comfortable with. Now, it'd be contradictory for us to say that people need to be comfortable with that without us ourselves being comfortable with it. But it's a commitment to the kind of platonic form of what we're working with, this idea that we're trying to kind of tease out and that hopefully is translated in the relationships that we form and the practices that we build. And local, again, to go back to a project, is a kind of great example of that, that commitment to the kind of the idea of what our practices are doing rather than the four walls of each practice, I think is like a, a way that we like are starting to be able to try and navigate this future because as we all know, the future is uncertain, the future is is challenging, but also the future is repetitive. And if we unfortunately kind of repeat this commitment to some of these like binding ideas of how we need to exist as an organisation, as a collective, as a space, and then sometimes as an institution, then we kind of find ourselves in danger of repeating those same problems, repeating those same habits. Yeah, I think in this conversation about future spaces, I think it goes alongside what Ama has talked about when we talk about limitations. And I just wanted to bring this back up. And this idea about our limitations in envisioning or how our visions for equity might in fact be limited by our own experiences. And I'm wondering what you think about this and if it's something that has crossed your mind before. Yeah, I think it has crossed my mind and it's difficult to grapple with because I don't know what I don't know. And I think that's where I rely on my community. I think that's where I rely on other artists. I think that's where I rely on the youth. I think they inspire me a lot in terms of envisioning even bigger than what I had thought. I also wanted to speak a little bit on sort of time. And I think when we think about the future, right? For me, it sort of represents a cycle, right? Like I think a lot of what we're experiencing and talking about now, and I think about environmental rights and land rights and indigenous rights, a lot of what we're experiencing is sort of a back to the future type of thing where even in film, you know, a lot of filmmaking practices such as like TikTok or YouTube or vlogging are actually really connected to indigenous practices of recording in terms of short form recording or recording without editing or recording without stopping. And I think that maybe 
when we think about future, we're actually thinking about returning to a place that we've been and seeing that through our own lens. Yeah. And I think just to go off of that a little bit, we're talking about futures, we're talking about limitations. And I think there is also the fact that a lot of the projects that you're going to do talk about this kind of cyclical aspect of looking at time. And a lot of the projects that you may work on may take on very different lives in the very diverse and sometimes opposing spaces that they may encounter. And I'm wondering how you grapple with this in your work, or does it even matter at all? In terms of the actual process, no, I don't think about how my film will be viewed a month from release or 10 years from release. But that to me is very exciting. I feel like releasing projects is one of my favorite parts for that very reason. It's because I don't know if this is going to, you know, be a magnus opus or if people are going to hate this in 10 years. And I find that exciting. I think, you know, with more time comes more context. And I think about films like Gone with the Wind that for many are considered like seminal works that for me, simply because I was born in the time that I was born in, it doesn't. It doesn't really carry any aesthetic or meaningful value to me because I think it's racist. I think a lot of artists, particularly filmmakers, there's an ego about it in that works are supposed to be revered for years and years to come, but I don't really see my work in that way. I create it in the present time. And I think that's my job, right? in my own way, through my own lens, inscribe and have my stamp on this particular time and with these particular people in these particular spaces. So when I'm creating my works, I don't think about the past or the future. I think about the present. And then when I release it, I try to release any sort of attachments to my ego about what people will think about this because I hold on to what I created it for as opposed to how other people ingest it. Thank you. And I'm wondering, Akil and Seth, how you've dealt with the kinds of contradictions that come about from your work, or if you have dealt with any kinds of oppositions to the work that you've done and how you deal with these things. Um, Akil speaking. We often find that we're faced with opposition in our work. And I think that's sometimes the nature of working within the built environment. You're often in a kind of conflicting political, socioeconomic space. So Maybe to say more than just stating the obvious with the response to the question, to draw on an example of a project in which we faced a lot of resistance from kind of various groups or factors, but not a kind of bog standard opposition, more like a kind of ideological point of conflict. I think when we were working on a project in Woolwich in South East London earlier this year, we were working in a local area in the town centre and we were part of a process in which we were selecting and guiding the work of five local designers. So these are people who um, had come through a process that we set up and guided by a number of different uh, local committees and selection process, and then also a series of um, artistic practitioners, creative practitioners, in order to develop a piece of public work that would exist within the town centre for two weeks. And then we acted as a type of infrastructure for the delivery of these works uh, and also helped to select the site in which these works were formed based on their historical condition, but also the lived uh, heritage of this place. Woolwich is a really diverse space and is the product of lots of different cultures, lots of ethnicities and subcultures uh, that went into the production of the place that we kind of know as Woolwich, the iconography of Woolwich. And in this project, we faced, I think, types of opposition which I think are not often thought of 
as directly opposing as often that's because they become from inside so for example the perception of the types of sites that we were selecting we were often shortlisted a number of sites across Woolwich that included a lot of alleys and a lot of these alleyways were kind of vestiges of the old Victorian urban fabric and so they were very dingy they were quite dark and they often you know contained or became the platform for different types of behaviors behaviors that were kind of collectively seen as deviant I guess Uh, and also their perception was places that were very unsafe especially for uh, women especially for young children they were kind of collectively seen as quite unsafe but a lot of these spaces ended up being the spaces that the artists or the local artists ended up choosing and I think that was testament to their prevalence in the kind of psychological in the collective imaginaries of local people these spaces which are often kind of shoved to the peripheries are also quite prevalent in people's collective imagination of their own area we faced a lot of opposition from the partners in the project not an antagonistic opposition but one of kind of uh, opposing viewpoints and perception as to why these were even figured in the first place and I think that type of contestation was actually quite helpful for the result of the project which ended up being a type of revelation a type of way of rethinking how we see these alleys as part of the heritage of the site and sites for potential but nonetheless contested sites not to disprove or to dissuade previous views on those sites but to include them within these types of overlapping histories. I think there was also opposition from uh, local stakeholders in terms of where these types of artworks would go and what these types of artworks would be and those I guess are kind of more structural opposition. These are things that um, become important when we start to think about the placement of these types of objects, where they go, how they look but again that type of opposition, I think, is something which really feeds a project. It feeds the complexity of a project. It engages a project in many ways. It means that sometimes some things just can't happen. It means that sometimes that a vision or a kind of grand scheme, a grand delusion, ends up dissolving and, and not being able to be materialised. But it enriches the investigative nature of the project and means that we get to read that environment more. And I think that's, you know, harking back to some of the things that we were saying, the projects that we're doing, we're, we're designing kind of processes. So we're thinking about how we read environments. We're not really thinking about how we deposit objects or products into the environment, but rather how can we create these processes that listen and develop our own understanding of these spaces. And, you know, to harken back and to keep banging on with this parallel between filming, between Amma's work, I think, that in many ways it's a type of camera. I think that we're trying to hold a type of lens to the environment through which to read it. And that just manifests in lots of different and weird ways. You've all talked about your intentions, your processes, the transformations within your work, its futures, and finally the contestations within these projects. And in Nexus podcast fashion, um, we wanted to conclude today by going back to some of your personal inspirations as designers and as a filmmaker, Emma. And what is one work, and it could be a book, a film, music, anything at all that has inspired you in the past? So yesterday we were reading a publication by a group that is quite close to us that we worked with in the past before called the Stuart Archives. It's a radical publishing house developed in the work of Stuart Hall, who was a really important cultural theorist of Caribbean origin in the UK and inspired a, kind of, a lot of the kind of practice and the conceptual frameworks with which I guess we work. And Stuart Archives are kind of based around it. It's a, a tripartite endeavour. It's Rose Norden, Priya Jay and Amrita Dalu, all three of whom we kind of very deeply respect and whose practices and works I think are kind of deep sources of inspiration for us. And the publication is called Floating Margins. That is a collection of essays, uh, experiments, textual and graphic, 
I've recorded conversations, etc., around, to some extent, I guess, and this idea of the living archive, but really tangibly looking into the various practices of, again, a real kind of collective and network of, all, of individuals with whom we have a really deep resonance with, broadening on topics around Black spatial justice, around topics of Carib um, spirituality and relationships to land, radical practices of healing, and how these spaces, how these textual spaces can also become those spaces for healing. So that's been really inspiration for us, even in the last, you know, 24, 48 hours since we read this. But it precludes a deeper inspiration that we had sought from those others. And so I think we often talk about our heroes as being the people that we practice amongst and those idols as being the people past. And so we feel very deeply privileged to be able to work within an amalgam of heroes, of people who are practicing, whether it's people like Rosa Johan Uda, um, who we share studio spaces with, who we share practices with, who we share endeavors with, whether it's Maya, the group in Birmingham that we can consistently reference in the project, whether it's Skin Deep, who we worked with in local and who we really try and drive towards in terms of our aims and ideals, in terms of progressing one another's practices, and the whole kind of remit of practitioners whom we kind of share and hold space. So I'd say that that is probably a deeper history of uh, inspiration, maybe condensed into this one publication, Floating Margins. And for me, I would say, I guess I'll talk about the book that I'm reading right now, which is Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler. I could sing her praises forever, but I think she's an artist who actually saw the future. Um, And when we talk about futures and we talk about how we want to create for futures, I think she was somebody who was creating literally outside of her time. For context, Lilith's Brood is about a young woman named Lilith who is on an alien ship after Earth has decayed into an unusable land and an alien race has come and taken the few humans who are left over and are raising them, essentially, not to give anything away. But in reading this book, there's a lot of themes that I admire. I think the way she thinks about these themes are really fantastic. She talks about environmental degradation, obviously, which is a huge issue right now. She talks about autonomy for the body, for space, for place. She talks about beauty. She talks about beauty standards and what's considered beautiful. And I think in many ways, what inspires me about this work is her world building. And I think in that applies to design, that applies to film, that applies to writing, that applies to so many different practices, right? But we're all trying, I think at this point, to build a new world, to envision something new because a lot of what's old is crumbling. And I think in my practice, I think visualization is really a huge thing. How do I show people what the future can look like? And I think for design, I think it's more material, it's more practical, how do we actually build something that people can latch on to. I'm a big believer in the phrase, um, I forget the actual phrase, but just that you have to meet the material needs of the people in order to actually have them hear you. Um, I think that in many ways, that's what we're all trying to do. And so these inspirations, do you see them reflected in your work? Do you think they have inspired the work you've done today? Definitely. I think Like when I talked about world building, I think that that's, uh, for a documentary, that's a little bit different. But in my other works, my first film is called Be Like Me. And it's about two sisters who are growing up in Los Angeles. And like with a short film, the film was only 11 minutes long. So I had to sort of build out these characters' worlds for viewers in a very short amount of time. 
but it's an important aspect of anything that I create is how do I set the scene and not just aesthetically, but how do I tell you where this person is at emotionally, where this person is at financially, where that this person is at in their lives so that when I tell you their story or this small part of their story, you can understand it a little bit more, understand it in context, because context is really important for me as a filmmaker. I'm at least in convergence, right? Like I'm taking these people's really, really vulnerable and personal stories and I'm putting it together in the context of a film that's four parts that talks about intimacy and vulnerability, as opposed to like when I'm creating something more narrative, I'm more physically trying to put my viewer in the space. I'm trying to, I guess, metaphysically put you into my characters' lives. So it's very important for me to build a world as succinctly and as specifically as possible, because I think that's how you do justice to the people that you're filming is that the specific can be universal, right? But like the specifics are what makes it about them. So world building is what I've taken from Octavia in this work and in other works that I've read from her. And that definitely inspires me. Second, just to like briefly talk about like the, you know, the ways it inspires us. I mean, we're, as Akira said, we're fortunate enough to exist within the kind of the field of inspiration that Akira's just described. So like the way that it influences and impacts our work is that it is, it is our work. Well, that's that, even that's the way that we started. It's the way that we came about is creating these spaces in which we could kind of platform and work with similar organizations in space, both kind of traditional physical space, but other forms of space as well. Um, and it's something that we kind of continue to practice and prioritize as we develop and grow. So yeah, I think we're just, we're fortunate enough to be able to kind of operate within that same space as some of the people that inspire us so much and then and work from them and with them. That brings us to a conclusion that Amy and I would love to say a big thank you to Resolve Collective and to you, Ama, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us too. I'm Asaswa Pepin. And I'm Amy Gonzalez. And you've been listening to The Nexus, a product of the African-American Design Nexus at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maggie Janik. And to learn more about the African-American Design Nexus, visit us online at aadn.gsd.harvard.edu. Thank you for listening.